This is HR in Review, a podcast dedicated to HR thought leadership, actionable advice and all the latest developments in human resource management. I'm Dan Suprate, Editor of HR Review, and I'm joined here today with Lord Mark Price. He is a former Government Minister of Trade, Managing Director of Waitrose and Deputy Chairman of John Lewis. Hello, Lord Price. Good morning. Do you mind if I call you Mark? Sorry, Lord I'd Price. much prefer you to call me Mark than Lord Price. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. My first question to be, Mark, is do you feel remote working is a sensible form of employment to offer as it can blur the line between your work and personal life? Uh, I think it is sensible to offer. I think it depends on the individual. There are clearly benefits to business. I can remember when I was running Waitrose, we were running out of office space, and one of the solutions was to think about people working more remotely. So it did have some business benefits, but also there are many individuals who commute a long way, uh, they feel that they're more productive at home, um, and they like the flexibility. So it can work for businesses and it can work for individuals. But the point that, that you make, Darius, is a really good one. How do we start to divide our working life from our home life? And increasingly over my 30 years or more in business, what I've seen is the workplace become more like home, pool tables or dining rooms that are kind of um, more interactive where you go make your own cups of tea or whatever you do. And I've seen the home become more like the workplace, people setting up offices at home and having computers at home. And therefore, I think it's incumbent on every individual to think really carefully about how they're making time for their personal life, their uh, family, their friends, their hobbies, and how they're making time for their working life. So it's more about how the individual manages their time. Of course, mobile phones and social media has also made it more difficult. It's why when I designed the Engaging Works Messenger, I made sure there was functionality on it that you could set the time when you could receive emails and work and the time when you didn't. When I ran Waitrose and we gave all of our managers iPads, I was very clear that if you wanted to send an email after six o'clock, you could do, but you didn't need to respond to it until at least nine o'clock the next morning. So you need to have some rules. I think organisations are best setting some rules. Um, and I think individuals are, are, are best to think about and be clear about the rules that the organisation should expect of them in terms of responding to things in their working hours. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, brilliant. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, because I, I remember it was research was in last year, so that quite a lot of a large amount of employees do check their emails or at least email activity after work hours is, is I say, it's reasonably high. So having that clear rule, I think, would definitely be a, would be a system. Well, I'm, I'm the world's worst. I, I set myself the target of having cleared every email I get before I go to sleep every night. And I got to one point in my business career, and I won't say when, where at uh, 11.30 I was going to bed, I opened up my emails and I didn't finish them till 1.30 in the morning. And I just thought this is getting out of hand. And so I very deliberately at that point decided that I had to manage things in a in a different way. The problem is that the emails build up and build up and build up if you don't answer them. And I've seen people with 2,000 emails on their phone. Mm. And therefore, you've got to go back to who's sending you the email? Are they just copying you in because they think it's nice? Mm. Are they really asking you for an answer? So again, it makes you think about what is this email? Why do I need to read it? What do I need to do about it? So... As I say, part of it is about the company setting some rules, but part of it is about the individual taking responsibility. And I think the technology, as with the Engaging Work Messenger, 
can help people in terms of managing their time more effectively. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. My second question, uh, with regard to the research that um, your own company, Engaging Works, uh, took of the happiest workplaces in the world, uh, the UK came eighth, but I did notice that all the uh, countries in the top ten are all uh, based in Europe. I was going to say, why, why do you think this is? It's a really good question, Darius, and until you mentioned that to me, I hadn't realised that our own research said that. Uh, we, do, we do get the United States that comes about 10th or 11th. Um, uh, Mexico tends to score quite highly. Uh, but the Scandinavian countries now have moved into the top 10 as well. I suspect it's because um, workers' legislation and workers' rights are arguably more developed and enshrined in law in the EU than elsewhere. Uh, that may be a reason. However, if you were to look until quite recently uh, at our ranking of happiest companies to work in or happiest industries to work in in countries, top of the pile was tech in Pakistan, which might strike you yeah. as being odd. Mm. So when we look at individual companies and individual industries in companies, we do find that there are places outside the UK that score quite highly. Mm. But I, I would probably say that Europe is, is um, at the moment ranking highly mm. simply because of the legislative framework that protects workers mm. and provides an environment that maybe people feel is better than elsewhere in the world. Mm. Um, but there are examples, if you go to our survey, where you'll see other countries that score highly. Do you think then, once uh, Brexit is uh, done and dusted, do you think then the UK will drop quite a few places who's no longer part of that umbrella of um, sort of employees' rights, or do you think the UK will be uh, strong and independent enough to sort of uh, at least keep its position or perhaps go up? I would hope that the government will start to think more clearly about the benefits of a happy and engaged workforce for productivity and that they will start to suggest that companies, maybe even require companies, to measure the engagement and the happiness of the people that work there. You see, all of the academic information and research that we've done says that if you are happy and engaged in a company, you take less time off sick, you are less likely to want to leave, therefore more can be spent on training therefore productivity is higher, therefore profits are higher, etc., etc. So there's clear evidence that says um, an engaged in a happy workforce has a very strong bearing on the commercial um, uh, performance of an organisation. What I really hope is that the UK government takes that on board, that business takes on board, and we start to improve productivity in the UK, which, as you know, and your listeners and readers will know, is not good. I mean, we, we're the bottom of the G7. In fact, we're bottom of the G20 when it comes to productivity. And it's not about investment in infrastructure. Compared to some of those countries, we have better transport, we have better internet structure, etc. It's more to do with the discretionary effort that individuals are giving in the workplace. And my view is that it's only when you start to properly measure that and you give individuals feedback on that that you can hope to improve. So there's no reason why Brexit should reduce the uh, the happiness of UK workers. As you said, at the moment, we rank about 10th in the world on our survey and we get results from 120 countries. But I think it could be better if we all embrace more the, the concept that a happy workforce is an engaged workforce, is a healthy workforce, is a more profitable and productive workforce. 
Okay, thank you, Mark. Uh, my next question is, uh, what ways do you feel employees could facilitate more learning opportunities at work? Well, I can remember when I ran John Lewis Cheadle, I was very keen that every person that worked in that shop, no matter what they, job they did, spent at least three hours a month on some kind of learning and development programme. And we set up a, a room in the shop which had a bank of internets. We put on those uh, devices, uh, a whole range of learning packages that went beyond the standard training that we had in the shop. Uh, we had lectures where we'd bring people in to talk about certain things. Uh, and we actively encouraged the managers to spend more time in training and coaching. So I think the very first thing is whether there is a belief within an organisation that training and development of individuals improves their productivity. My personal view is it does. All of the research that we do on engaging work says that career development is one of the things that people are looking for at all stages of their career. It's particularly prevalent with under 30s. Uh, who want to feel as though they're learning. It's also particularly prevalent with now um, uh, men who are sort of mid-40s, who see the world changing around them and aren't quite sure how to manage that world. So my particular uh, view is that career development, training, is hugely important if you're going to have a happy and engaged workforce. And I think, therefore, it has to be down to uh, management encouraging people to take that on. The way that I've tried to help that is that on the Engaging Works website and on the app, what we do is we have a section on career development. It allows you to do a Myers-Briggs test on personality profile. It allows you to do EQ tests, IQ tests. Uh, it allows you to do a career path test. So all the kind of things that you would need to understand what kind of job and what kind of role suits you best. But then beyond that, what I've built, Darius, is a business library with podcasts and lectures and articles so that people can go and learn more just by going to that uh, website. And then if anybody takes the workplace uh, happiness uh, survey, at the end of it, they get advice uh, on where they can improve. And we point them to podcasts they can go and listen to, lectures that they can listen to, watch articles that they can read. So it, I am clearly a very strong believer that what you need to do is to encourage people and then provide access for people to what they need to develop personally. Brilliant, thank you, Mark. And regarding Mark's business library, HR has written an article on it. There's over 6,000 HR books in it, so any HR professionals listening should feel free to uh, have a read of it. I'm sure it'll be very useful. And if you sign up to our premium uh, offer, you get 20% off all business books. An added benefit too. Why not subscribe to the premium version of HR in Review? You'll get ad-free content, early and extra episodes and more. Even better, although it's the premium edition, it's absolutely free. Sign up at hrreview.co.uk slash podcast. So what further development do you feel can be done in wellbeing? Well, I think the good thing is that lots of people are talking about it. And it now is seen uh, and has been measured to have a tangible benefit to the UK economy if we get well-being right. And the real focus has been on, on mental health. Mm. And there are lots of figures now that state what it's worth to the UK economy if well-being, uh, mental health, etc., was to improve. What I've always tried to measure are, are three elements of well-being, and it's one of the things that focuses in our engagement survey. 
and they are mental health, physical health, but also financial help. And I think if organisations were to think more about what they could do, um, I think there are um, upsides still to be had. So um, long before I joined the John Lewis Partnership, the the founder of the organisation almost 100 years ago, before the formation of the NHS, decided it would be a good idea if he had doctors in every John Lewis department store and physiotherapists and chiropodists. Now, part of that was philanthropic, but part of it was that he recognised that if he could give his people um, quick access to medical support, he would keep them at work longer um, and he would save them uh, going on sick leave, etc., etc. So he did that for physical and for mental health, but also he set up a committee called Committee for Claims. So if any partner got into financial difficulty, a committee would agree to give an interest-free loan to the individual, which would be offered by the company. So he was also concerned about their financial well-being. I don't think those things are out of the question for companies today. Now, a lot of companies are very good and they get a masseur to come in or a yoga instructor to come in. And that's a sort of modern day interpretation Mm. of that. But I think, and and obviously companies offer health plans and different Mm. things in terms of the NHS. But I, I think that there is a case for management to sit down and say, what might we choose to do to A, demonstrate to employees that we really care. And one of my favorite quotes is Theodore Roosevelt, who said, nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. So it is that demonstration that you care by a company mm. that makes people more attached and more engaged to your organization. Mm. But then beyond that, it's what you could do to try and reduce your, your sick absence bill. I mean, sick absence, as you know, uh, costs the UK you know tens of millions of pounds every year. Just re- reducing it by a few days has a real commercial and tangible benefit. Mm. I mean, you're saying that, um, just discussing perks, one part of that, that when I uh, came across that sort of uh, woke me up a bit was at Google of uh, uh, sleep pods in their, in their headquarters and their employees do go and have a, a snooze on a lap during a, a long day or if they're particularly tired. I mean, that is, um, that's something we don't, well, I've never come across anyway, but that's something we don't usually see a lot in London. Do, do you think that is, uh, do you think that's sort of well-being perhaps taken a step too far or do you think that's exactly the sort of thing we do need to be offering uh, our employees? Well, when, when I started work in, uh, in John Lewis in 1982, uh, every department store and every waitress had a, a partner's restroom. Mm. And so you would go there and find partners kipping um, <laughs> either at the end of their lunch hour or whenever. Mm. So um, I think that formalising it and saying, look, it's OK to have a half hour nap if you're really tired. Mm. Is, yeah, I mean, it's not a bad thing. I mean, clearly what Google have done is taken people falling asleep in an armchair to a new level and actually giving them a sleep bond. But I don't think it's a it's a silly idea. And if in the culture that you have at Google, where you know some people are working incredibly late at night, giving them a bit of space and freedom in the day to be sensible uh, doesn't strike me as a bad idea. Um, there's clearly a huge cost to it, but then Google have got a lot of money, so they can obviously afford to do that. But the notion of respecting an individual's body clock and when they can work and when they're finding it more ha- uh, difficult to work uh, seems to me altogether sensible and pragmatic where you can do that. Now, clearly, there are jobs where you can't do it. If you're running a machine, you can't say, oh, I'm off for half an hour for a kip and the machine stops. But mm. there are other places mm-hmm. where if work's more flexible and clearly you can do that. 
Okay, thank you, Mark. Um, what do you think the, as we sort of, you sort of just touched it now, but what do you think the future of well-being is going to look like? So I think the future of well-being will be part defined by legislation mm-hmm. and I think will be part defined by more enlightened organisations realising the commercial benefits. So when a government looks at the cost to the UK of uh, sick absence, staff turnover, it will say there is a prize here for UK productivity. When organisations look at the cost, of really look at the cost of turnover, £5,000 on average for an individual, or on the cost of sick absence, they will turn a lens on it. And therefore, I think what will happen is that companies will will take far more time and interest in measuring the well-being, happiness, uh, engagement of their workforce. I think already what we're seeing is lots of companies moving away from big set piece once a year engagement surveys into lots of surveys through the years. So pulse surveys, I think you're going to see more of that. I think that organisations are going to think about how they can uh, look after particular individuals at engaging works if you want to we can do surveys for an individual once a month which go through to a mentor so they'll be thinking more about how do we manage the health and well-being of individuals and some I think some organizations will be proactive and they'll move to reporting that because they'll see it as being a real advantage what they'll say is you know our company has low staff sickness our company does this our company looks after the the well-being of people. And if you think about some of the critical issues that we have at the moment, climate change one, plastic and waste is another, um, I think alongside that will be the well-being of your workforce. I think it will become increasingly more important. And in the same way government will legislate and measure carbon and climate and plastic waste, so I think that they'll think increasingly about how are we going to measure this? Because it's going to be better for the UK. It's going to be better for society. It's going to be better for productivity and the and the exchequer. And therefore, enlightened businesses will move ahead of the government. But I do think that over the next five years, 10 years, governments increasingly are going to say, we need to put some, um, some measurement in place for this. And we need to see it as, as an improvement. What I'm trying to do in advance of that is to give individuals the ability to be able to see which companies are the happiness so they can go and they can rank the companies they work for but also I want to try and help companies find out uh, where their employees are most and least happy and to be able to do some practical things about it so that's what I think will be the biggest change I don't think the issue now is about recognizing necessarily the importance it's having recognized the importance about measuring. I mean, there's that old quote, isn't it? What you care about, you measure. And I think now we are getting into how do you measure it? Is measuring it once a year at huge cost enough? Do you have to measure more frequently? Do you have to measure it on an individual basis or do you measure it on a group basis? My view is you need to measure it on an individual basis. You know, results matter to you as much as they matter to an organisation. Of regarding of what you've just sort of touched on, but do you think businesses are truly becoming aware of importance of well-being, or are they just simply sort of following a crowd because well-being has become just a more of a sort of buzzword, more widely known? Mm. And to be, if you're not sort of um, covered well-being aspect, you're then you'll see some general disadvantages that are just sort of um, improving their well-being status to sort of bring up their competitive edge, or is it truly come down to that they've now they now know the sort of uh, the, the cost and the importance of it. 
I think it's some and some, uh, and your uh, HR directors and managers listening to this will know whether they work in a company where they are paying lip service to um, the engagement and happiness of their workforce or where they're really committed to improving it. But even where they're paying lip service, I'm just encouraged that you know the, the agenda is out there, that people want to make sure that the working experience is good so that people give more and productivity is higher, etc. So I would say it's some and some in terms of embracing this agenda, but I think more and more will embrace it because what will happen, as you have said, it will become a competitive advantage. You know, it will become a competitive advantage for recruitment. Where do I want to work if I'm 21? A company that's ranked highest for workplace happiness on the Engaging Works Index or somewhere that's ranked 550th? It will, it will make a difference. In, in, in addition to that, um, employers will recognise that people that are engaged and happy will work for longer with them. They can train them more. Their productivity will be higher. The glue in the in the organisation, um, the sentiment in the organisation would be better, and there'll be all sorts of benefits for society. So I think increasingly people will realise this is more important. What one of the things that I find um, uh, I find incongruous is I talk to a lot of business leaders who spend an inordinate amount of money measuring their customers' satisfaction, which is incredibly hard to do actually to get. Uh, a a, a customer to say what they really think about the experience and you'll know now you get texts every day saying did you enjoy you'll get a phone call saying tell us how so and so did and they're constantly searching for ways to get feedback I don't know if you'd agree but I don't see that energy from any organization about how did my employees feel today did they have a good day or a bad day what was it that really wound them up how do we make it better tomorrow And it's when that focus comes to looking after your employees that I think that we will reach our potential in terms of driving productivity in the UK. So for some, it's definitely, we need to do this. Government might legislate, let's get ahead of the curve. There are some that genuinely believe that it drives performance, which is great because it does. But I think that increasingly what you will find is that individuals will start demanding uh, a greater focus. Okay, thank you, Mark. Follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. A uh, research uh, said that the lunch hour is disappearing due to overworked employees and this research came from uh, Flexio Physicians which found that uh, 22% of employees say have too much work during the day and it stops them from taking uh, a proper lunch break. Um, how big an issue do you feel this is? Well, if I was French, I would say it's a massive issue. Um, <laughs> or Italian or Spanish. Um, I'm not sure in the UK. Uh, I'm really not sure. Um, if your employer is flexible in saying to you, look, you know, if you, you know, take less of a lunch break and you can go earlier or you can come in later, I think most employees are happy to trade that. Um, and again, you know, most employees seem so engaged in the work in the offices that I go into that they're happy to have a sandwich and a coffee. So I think that in term, if it's flexible in terms of employees being able to take the time either side, um, and if it's what individuals want to do, that's fine. I think that the more important issue with it is around um, how you build a team and sociability. 
So you asked me at the start, Darius, a question about working from home and was it good or bad. Mm. I think the challenge of things like zero-hour contracts, flexible home working, uh, having lunch and breaks at your desks, is that you don't mingle with your colleagues. You don't talk to them about what they did at the weekend or where they're going on holiday. And it's those kind of bonds that I think are really important, that you commit to each other um, in some way socially as well as in a professional sense. And it's all those conversations that happen uh, when you meet uh, around a, a coffee station about, you know, informally what's going on at work and what you can fix. All of those things are lost. So I'm still in the camp that says, I think it's good that people are in an office together. I think it's good that people can talk to each other. And I think that breaks are one way in which that can happen, that teams bond and build. And through that bonding and building, you tend to find commitment to each other is greater. You tend to find that staff turnover is lower. So the main reason that it's important is far more about that building of teams and that molding of individuals. If for some reason, you know, people were eating at their desks, what I would try very hard to do is find other opportunities for people to spend social time together. That happened a lot when I first started in the John Lewis Partnership in the 80s. Um, there were multiple uh, committees and societies that people could join. So if you were a potter or if you were an archer or if you were a golfer, there was a society you could join. And it, it became a, a, a closed team. Longevity of service was prized. Um, nepotism in terms of bringing in family members was positively encouraged. You know, if you had a relative who worked in the business, you had more chance of getting in. And that was all about how do you bond a group together? Um, I think perhaps some of that has been forgotten and lost over the course of time. And perhaps more recently, people have thought, well, actually, you know, it's easier just to chop a group and bring a new group in with new skills rather than to keep people and retrain. And I'm not convinced that's right. So in Engaging Works, what I want to do is to build a team that are close together, that work together, that lunch together, that coffee together, that talk together, that have fun and feel genuinely committed to each other. I think through that you get real added benefits in terms of um, uh, work. Thank you, Mark. Um, again, research from uh, Engaging Works has showed that um, women do enjoy their jobs more than men, but only uh, marginally. Um, so, uh, sixty-nine point four percent of women enjoy their jobs compared to sixty-six point eight percent of men. So, when women do have a lead, it's very small. But my question would be that if we did uh, uh, obtain true equality, um, so we uh, sort of raise the gender pay gap, and women did feel as developed and as empowered as men, do you then think their uh, enjoyment of a job would somewhat skyrocket compared to men because they're already so close with these um, current challenges? Uh, in, for, in, in reality of, uh, of the world of work. What I should say is when we first did the global survey three years ago, men were higher than women. And for the last two years, women have been higher than men, although, as you say, it's marginal. There are six elements that we measure in terms of workplace happiness. Pay or reward and recognition is one. Then we do sharing of information. Then we do empowerment. Then we do um, well-being. Then we do... Uh, sense of purpose, and then we do job satisfaction, which is really about career development and line management relationship. The, the areas where women score lowest uh, are on information, receiving information to do their job well, feeling that they're informed. And the second is about empowerment, feeling trusted and respected to do their jobs. 
Um, pay isn't a huge issue. It's not that different to men in terms of how they feel about how women feel about pay. So if you wanted um, engagement of women to improve, and I'm generalising because it's different for millennial women as it is for older women as it is for ethnic women, but if you wanted it in a general sense to improve, there are two things that organisations should be focused on. The first is making sure that they feel truly informed about what's happening in the organisation and, and they have the information to do their job properly because they clearly at the moment feel less well-informed than men, for whatever reason. The second is, and it may well come down to self-confidence, I don't know, but the second is that they feel trusted and respected to do the job. I talk to lots of women who say that they feel as though they have imposter syndrome, <laughs> that they can't understand why they're doing the job, and they have self-doubt. And if I was generalising madly over the course of, of, of my career, I would say that Women tend to feel that more than men. Men tend to have more self-confidence about their ability to do a job. And I think that you just need to recognise that. And that's part about giving people the confidence to do the job, giving them the information, recognising when they uh, do well. In terms of recognition, women feel less recognised than men. And I think that's because people just don't say, thank you, you did a good job often enough. So those would be the things that I would focus on if I wanted to further improve women's pay. Pay overall just does not come out as the top thing in our workplace happiness survey. It often does incorporate uh, engagement surveys because it's gained. The, the big difference about the engaging work survey is because the individual gets feedback as well as the company and because the individual then gets comparative data, they tend to be more honest in their responses. So we actually find that pay is the ninth highest uh, area of dissatisfaction. The, the top ones are about career development. I'm not being developed, which links to pay because people know if they develop more, they're going to be paid more. So uh, those those would be my top thing to improving the engagement and happiness of women at work. Uh, trust, respect, empowering more, uh, giving people the self-confidence to do the job and about more openly and freely sharing information about what's going on. Brilliant, thank you. Um... You are very soon to be uh, in, launching conjecture with a day telegraph the happiest places to work awards. Yeah. So this could be uh, an anonymous tool out in the UK of the best places to work in the UK. Um, generally, guess us who you think is going to um, sort of place in the list, or is, <laughs> would you rather not say? Or, I, well, I, well, we already so on, on the on, on the engagement works website. If you now go to the jobs board, what we do have there is a ranking by industry and by country of the happiest industries to work in and the happiest countries. So we have that. But also now you can go there and you can rank uh, a company. It takes, you know, seven minutes and you get personal feedback. So we have it now. Um, the, the whole point of, of um, partnering with the Daily Telegraph is we just want to erase awareness of which are the happiest companies to work for? Everybody wants to work for a happy company, don't they? You want a company that's going to make you feel feel happy. So in that sense, partnering with The Telegraph is new. Measuring this uh, isn't new. Um, and what I hope we'll be able to do in a very positive way, not in a glass door negative way, is give people information on the best places to work, not to provide people with a long list of gripes of you know places that you shouldn't work. So I see this as being a far more positive version of Glassdoor. 
companies, if they want, can go to the site and they can have a business information page. So they can say, you know, uh, our company is ranked number three in the happiest places to work in the hospitality sector and this is all about us. So I want to set it up as a positive place that you go to to find the places that you'll most enjoy working in rather than a negative place that you just go to um, to slag off your business or organisation. So you don't think Glassdoor is a really productive way to give information to uh, potential employees or job hunters as well then? Um, I, I, I think that it has, um, it has some benefit, but when I've read it, it seems mainly to be disgruntled employees mm -hmm. writing. Um, I think the economic model is challenged. I've had lots of organisations say to me that the cost of putting your defence up there is huge. Uh, on Engaging Works, I think it costs £8.99 to have a, a business page or you can join the Engaging Business Network and as part of that network you get it for free. Um, so I, I don't want there to be a cost to give an individual information that's going to help them happy at work. I want them to do the survey for free. I want businesses to have the opportunity to talk about their organisation. And if businesses score poorly, we just won't put the ranking up. We'll only put the ranking up of places that have a score of at least 60% or more. So, you know, it's not there to knock companies. It's there to uh, reward companies who genuinely are trying to make sure that their workforce is happy and engaged. So it comes at it from a different end. Brilliant. Thank you, Mark. And thank you for listening. The HR and Review podcast is brought to you by hrreview.co.uk. hrreview.co.uk is a website dedicated to human resources and related professionals. News items are posted daily together with analysis looking in-depth at topical HR issues. You can sign up for our range of specialist newsletters at hrreview.co.uk slash sign up and follow us on Twitter at HR Review or join us on LinkedIn and Facebook. Thank you for listening.